0: Hello fellow kids, and welcome back to What Is Politics. The late David Graeber, who is a wonderful anthropologist, writer, and political activist, is going to be publishing a posthumous book co-authored with archaeologist David Wengrow called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. And based on the preview chapters and essays that they've been publishing over the past few years, this book is sure to be a great read, really stimulating, extremely popular, asking all the right questions, but then also coming up with a lot of the wrong answers. And some right answers, but for the wrong reasons. And those wrong answers and wrong reasons are going to be a really harmful influence on our political movements and our political intelligence in a bunch of ways. So in this episode and the next couple of episodes, I'm going to be criticizing and reading those preview chapters and essays that Graeber and Wengro have been putting out from the dawn of everything. And I'm going to highlight the good stuff and the bad stuff. So we can learn to avoid all sorts of common mistakes and traps that people often fall into. And hopefully we can learn all the right answers to the extremely important questions that they're asking. Where does human dominance hierarchy come from? And what can we do today to reduce or eliminate it? So in the next episode, I'll be doing a line-by-line critique of Grayburn and Wengro's very popular article from 2018 called How to Change the Course of Human History. But first, in this episode, I'll be discussing and reading excerpts from an actual chapter of Dawn of Everything, which was published in 2019 in French, under the title of La Sagesse de Condiaronque, La Critique Indigène, Le Mythe du Progrès et la Naissance de la Gauche, and which in English translates to The Wisdom of Condiaronque, The Indigenous Critique, The Myth of Progress, and the Birth of the Left. And I read it in French, which I'm fluent in, but you can get a pretty good English translation on gargle, translate, or D people translate. So let's get into the wisdom of Kandia Ronk. So in this chapter, Graeber and Wengro point out that many of the key insights and concepts associated with the European Enlightenment, ideas of individual liberty and equality, and the rejection of religious dogma, and established social hierarchy based on ascribed status, that these ideas were heavily influenced by Europeans' encounters with Native Americans. This influence came both from observing the North American way of life, which flew in the face of the social order that Europeans had been taught to believe was natural and ordained by God for hundreds of years, and the influence also came from specific critiques of European society, religion, and economy and values made by the Americans themselves. Merchants, Jesuit missionaries, soldiers, military men, and various kinds of settlers went across the Atlantic Ocean to the New World, taking for granted a whole array of rigid social dominance hierarchies between rich and poor, kings and subjects, lords and serfs, masters and servants, men and women, massive wealth inequalities, and property relationships that kept some people in servile and dependent relationships to other people. But North America truly was a new world in more ways than one the European immigrants and colonists were shocked to discover that the so-called savages that they encountered lived in societies where these hierarchies either didn't exist at all or else they existed in relatively mild forms. And it was a further shock in these encounters to hear the Americans excoriating and making fun of those hierarchies and calling the Europeans slaves. Before we go any further, I want to clarify what a hierarchy is in a political context. A hierarchy is a system where people or things are ranked according to some value. You can rank fruits, for example, according to which one has a higher sugar content or according to their color. You can rank runners according to who is the fastest. Chess players according to who is the most skilled. Uh, These are hierarchies of competence, like Jordan Peterson likes to talk about. But when we're talking about politics, we don't care about any of these kinds of hierarchies. The word politics refers to decision-making in groups, like I said earlier. So when we're talking about hierarchy or equality in the context of politics, what we're talking about is hierarchy or equality of decision-making power, i.e. dominance hierarchies, where one person or group or class of people dominates another in the sense that they get to tell them what to do. And we're only interested in other kinds of hierarchies, like hierarchies of competence or hierarchies of wealth, if and when those hierarchies translate into dominance hierarchy, hierarchies of decision-making power. So for example, we often talk about economic inequality when it comes to politics. We don't care that one person gets to have a lot of toys and roller coasters and another person gets to have less toys. The reason that this is a political issue is because economic inequality translates into decision-making inequality. The Lord tells the serf what to do because the Lord owns the land that the serf depends on to live. Your boss tells you what to do and not the other way around because your boss had money to start a workplace and you need the salary that he has to give you and you don't have those things on your own. You and Jeff Bezos each have one vote, but Jeff Bezos can hire an army of lobbyists who work 24-7 to influence how politicians think and what information or ideas they're exposed to. And meanwhile, you can write an email once in a while, maybe go to a city hall meeting and ramble about things and you will just be ignored. The other reason that economic inequality is such a political issue is that in a democratic society, meaning a society where people have a meaningful say in the decisions that affect them, if a majority of people don't have enough resources to live properly, functionally, they will likely decide to transfer wealth away from a minority of people who have an enormous amount of resources. Economics, which is anything to do with resources, is often political because we're constantly making decisions about resources that affect groups of people. Now, decision-making hierarchies serve three main purposes. Number one, they allow for more efficient group cooperation. For example, you can't produce a movie if everyone on the crew is just doing whatever they want and making their own calls and decisions at every given moment. Decision-making hierarchies reduce conflicts and arguments, because if there's this agreement, the person on top automatically wins in advance. Like, the lighting director wants to use bright, blasted lighting to take away the wrinkles in the actors' faces, but the director says, no, I want dark, grainy lighting and I want to highlight the wrinkles in the actors' faces. Well, the director automatically wins, whether that's good for the script or bad for the script. And the fact that the winner is predetermined in advance and that conflict is avoided is one of the reasons that hierarchies allow for large group cooperation. And finally, and very importantly, hierarchies allow people on the top of the hierarchy to exploit the people on the bottom of the hierarchy and it allows them to extract more than their proportional share of the benefits of their labor. Like the investors in a film, uh, the production company, sit on their butts and do nothing besides having money. But meanwhile, they get all of the profits from the film that all the crew, the actors, the director, the producer, everyone worked so hard on this thing, but they just get their wage and the owners get all the profits. And finally, when we're talking about the conflict between hierarchy versus equality, we're talking about the political right versus the political left, because that's what left and right refer to. The right represents the forces in favor of dominance hierarchies, and the left represents the forces in favor of equalizing or eliminating the ranks of whatever hierarchy we're talking about. And that's ultimately a spectrum between authority on the right and democracy on the left. And I know that there are a lot of other definitions floating around, and I know that a lot of people who think that they're on the right are super pro-democracy, and people who think that they're on the left are super pro-dictatorship, but too bad for you. You're in the wrong camp. These are the historical definitions of left and right, and they're the only definitions that make any sense, and you can see episodes 5, 4, and 3 of this podcast if you want to understand why. So... When people who are entrenched in a dominance hierarchy system, like 16th and 17th century European immigrants to the Americas, and they have a system of beliefs and values that justifies those hierarchies. When people like that encounter other people who aren't stuck in that specific kind of system, like the Native Americans that they're encountering, there are two basic ways of reacting to this if you're the person in the hierarchical group. The first is to realize, holy shit, I've been putting up with all this crap for all of my life for no reason. People bullying me around, bossing me around, smacking me around. And actually we have another great example of this in American history, the early suffragettes many of the early suffragettes were actually moved to fight for their equal rights based on their encounters with the Haudenosaunee and Huron women that they were encountering. And those women, those Native Americans, would be laughing at the Europeans for being subject to their husband's authority. So one reaction to encounters like this is to reject the legitimacy of the hierarchies that you're subject to. And the other is to be horrified by the fact that people aren't conforming to these hierarchies. And you feel like those people who don't recognize the legitimacy of the hierarchy that you're subjecting yourself to is a threat to your whole identity and to your sense of self-worth and all the sacrifices that you've made to be part of that hierarchy. And in hierarchical societies, self-worth is generally tied to accepting one's place in a hierarchy. That's literally what separates adults from children. And then you try to crush those people who you see as savages, who need correction, much like you as a child needed to be crushed in order to accept hierarchy. And once you did that, then you got conferred on you the status of an adult and of a serious person. And you see a lot of the dialogue around converting Native Americans and the residential schools and stuff like that. It's all about, oh, they're children, they need guidance, they need correction. You see this language over and over because you hate the part of yourself that was free before you accepted these hierarchies as legitimate. The reaction that you will have will depend on various things, like how psychologically and materially invested you are in the hierarchical system that you're part of. If you're at the top of a hierarchy and enjoying all the benefits, you probably will sense that the other culture without these hierarchies is an existential threat to your privileges. So you need to crush it, or else your servants or your wife will get ideas about equality, and you can't have that. And you can also be near the bottom of a hierarchy, but still be very psychologically invested in it. In societies where women get clitorectomies, it's other women who have had clitorectomies that are the ones who are most invested in making sure that the babies get their clitorectomies. Your whole sense of being a good person is based on all the sacrifices you make on a daily basis. Not having sex, obeying your shitty husband, or your stupid boss, or your master. And then these hippies and savages, they think they're entitled to just do whatever they want and not listen to anyone. Who do they think they are? So the Europeans encountering the Native Americans, of course, had both of these kinds of reactions. Back to Grayburn Wengro's book chapter, uh, greyburn Wengro quotes some of the reactions of Jesuit missionaries to the people that they encountered. First there's Père Lejeune, Father Lejeune, who did his missionary work among the Montagnan Escapi people in what's now Quebec and parts of Labrador. They imagine that they ought by right of birth to enjoy the liberty of wild-ass colts, rendering no homage to anyone whomsoever, except when they like. They have reproached me a hundred times because we fear our captains, while they laugh and make sport of theirs. All the authority of their chief is in his tongue's end, for he is powerful only in so far as he is eloquent. And, even if he kills himself talking and haranguing, he will not be obeyed unless he pleases the savages. And then Lejeune continues beyond the passage that uh, Greyburn once wrote quote, Our savages are happy. For the two tyrants who provide hell and torture for many of our Europeans do not reign in their great forests. And by that I mean ambition and avarice. They have neither political organization, nor offices, nor dignities, nor any authority. For they only obey their chief through goodwill towards him. Also, as they're contented with a mere living, not one of them gives himself to the devil to acquire wealth. And here's another quote from Père L'Allemand, who missioned among the Wandat people. I could hardly believe that there is any place in the world more difficult to subject to the laws of Jesus Christ, not only because they have no knowledge of letters, no historical monuments, no idea of a divinity who has created the world and who governs it, but above all because I do not believe that there is any people on earth freer than they, and less able to allow the subjugation of their wills to any power whatever, so much so that fathers here have no control over their children, or captains over their subjects, or the laws of the country over any of them except in far as each is pleased to submit to them. And then uh, Grayburn and Wengro uh, continue about the native reaction to the Europeans. In the view of the Montagnier Nescapi, by contrast, the French were little better than slaves, living in constant fear of getting into trouble with their superiors. Such criticisms appeared regularly in the Jesuit accounts, not only from those who lived in nomadic hunter-gatherer bands, but also from settled town dwellers like the Wandat, And I'm quoting a bit more than Graeber and Wengro quote because they tend to leave out the parts where people have no political authorities or authoritarian gods to obey. And I'm highlighting the fact that he didn't include this in his quote because he was just in denial that these kinds of societies exist because he's on this whole thing about how there's no such thing as equality, as we'll look into a bit later. Now, these quotes come from the various volumes of the Jesuit relations books which were like diaries or accounts by Jesuit missionaries which were extremely popular in Europe at that time. Like imagine if people from Earth landed on another planet and we were getting reports and diaries about how the people on those other planets lived. How? popular those reports would be. Well, that was like what the Jesuit relations were. And what's really fascinating, and I think a really great insight here, is that Graeber points out that people today who'd be reading these reports in Western Democratic countries would have a lot more in common in terms of worldview and attitudes with the Native American hunter-gatherers and tribal horticulturists than they would have with their own European ancestors. And this is exactly right. Over the past 500 years, and particularly in the past 100 years, various social movements have been fighting to eliminate most of those social hierarchies that the Americans ridiculed the Europeans for. And as we've reduced those hierarchies, we've become more like the Native Americans were in many fundamental ways. Anyhow, learning about the way of life of the Native Americans and their critique of European life contributed to the discussions and debates and cultural changes and challenges that were already happening in Europe at the time. Now, on top of these Jesuit travelogues and books and diaries, eager European readers were also gobbling up other books about the New World, like Baron La Hontan's dialogues with A Savage of Good Sense, Who Has Traveled, which was first published in serial form in 1703. In these dialogues, La reports debates between himself and Adario, a fictionalized version of the real chief Kandiaranque, a Native American of the Wandat nation who La Hontan had become friends with and who had engaged with Kandiaranque in many debates and discussions in Montreal, which is where I'm recording this video from. And in these debates, Adario made detailed critiques of European society, of religion, of patriarchy, of social castes, of wealth inequality, of ownership of private property, the existence of a punitive legal system, and particularly the existence of money. And these same arguments were soon echoed and sometimes wholesale adopted by Enlightenment philosophers in their debates and treatises, in particular the works of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So let's take a look at some of Condiaron's critiques, as recorded by Laurentin, as cited by Graeber and Wengro. I find it hard to see how you Europeans could be much more miserable than you already are. What kind of human being, what kind of creature must Europeans be, to be forced to do good and refrain from any evil only for fear of punishment? You have noted that we lack judges. What is the reason for this? It's because we never bring accusations against each other. And why do we never sue each other? Because we have made a decision not to accept or use money. Why? Because we are determined not to have laws. Since the world was a world, our ancestors were able to happily live without them. Condéronc then goes on to eviscerate the French legal system point by point. And this is Draber and Weingro talking focusing particularly on judicial persecution, perjury, torture, accusations of witchcraft, and differential justice for the rich and poor. And in the end, he returns to his original observation. The whole punitive apparatus of trying to force people to behave properly would be useless if France did not also maintain contrary institutions that incentivize people to behave badly. These institutions consisted of money, property rights, and the resulting pursuit of material self-interest. Condorcet continues, I've spent six years thinking about the state of European society, and I still can't think of a single one of your ways that isn't inhumane. And I sincerely believe that it can only be because you stick to your distinctions of mine and yours. I affirm that what you call money is the devil of devils, the tyrant of the French, the source of all evil, the scourge of souls, and the slaughterhouse of living. To imagine that one can live in the land of money and preserve one's soul is like imagining that one can preserve one's life at the bottom of a lake. Money is the father of luxury, lasciviousness, intrigue, deceit, lies, betrayal, insincerity, all the worst behaviors in the world. Fathers sell their children, husbands their wives, wives betray their husbands, brothers kill each other, friends are false, and all for money. In light of all this, tell me that we Wondat are not right to refuse to touch or even look at money. La Hontan then tries to counter-argue that without money, Europe would collapse. Without it, Nobles, priests, merchants, and many others who do not have the strength to work the soil, would simply starve. Our kings would not be kings. What soldiers would we have? Who would work for the kings, or for anyone else? This would plunge Europe into chaos and create the darkest confusion. Adario, a.k.a. Kondiaronk, replies, Do you really think that you will influence me by catering to the needs of nobles, merchants, and priests? Yes, such distinctions between men would dissolve. A leveling equality would then take its place among you as it does now among the Wandaat. And he goes on to say that all the useless parasites who live off of others' labor will die off, but their children will know how to work, and the world will be a much better place. I've enumerated many times the qualities which define humanity. Wisdom, reason, justice, etc. And I've shown that people having opposed material interests turns all of these things on their heads. A man motivated by interests can never be a man of reason. So you have this critique coming from Native Americans, but also from Europeans like Laurentin, who clearly agrees with Condéronque. And this stuff is tearing across Europe, challenging the social order, like heavy metal and rap records did in the 1980s and the 1970s. And ultimately, Graeber and Wengrow argue, and I think this is where their original argument comes in, the stuff about Native American influence on the West has been argued before by other scholars. So their original argument is that, in order to fend off these types of critiques from Native Americans, and the Europeans influenced by them, that European thinkers develop the theory of stages of human progress. Like the idea that we start off as hunter-gatherers, then we become farmers, then we become civilized people. So the originator of this idea is not a conservative traditionalist, but a bourgeois liberal free market economist, Turgot, who notably was Louis XIV's economic advisor, who opposed the reduction of bread prices during a famine, one of the things that triggered the revolution. So he was someone who was against the medieval hierarchies of the three social orders and the rule of the church, but who at the same time was very much for economic hierarchies, and he was also a monarchical absolutist. In Chorgos formulation, people start off as hunter-gatherers and then they move up and advance to being pastoralist animal herders, and then they advance to being farmers, and then finally they advance to the apex of civilization to commercial market civilization, with each stage being better and happier for everyone than the previous one had been. And in this schema, the liberty and equality that the Native Americans enjoyed were ultimately signs of economic and cultural backwardness, something that's incompatible with advanced civilization. Quoting from Graeber. Yes, we all like the idea of liberty and equality, Turgot writes. That is, in principle. But one must take into account the larger context. In reality, the freedom and equality of savages is not a sign of their superiority, but a proof of their inferiority, since such equality is only possible in a society where each household is largely self-sufficient, and thus where all are equally poor. As societies evolve and technology advances, the natural differences in talents and abilities between individuals become more and more important, and eventually they form the basis for an ever more complex division of labor. And the poverty and disposition of some, however lamentable, is the necessary condition for the prosperity of society as a whole. There is no way to avoid this. The only alternative, according to Turgot, would be massive state intervention to create a uniformity of social conditions, an imposed equality that could only have the effect of crushing all initiative, and thus be an economic and social catastrophe. And these are the same arguments that we've heard over and over ever since, but which reached a particular crescendo during the Cold War, when these arguments became the heart of the pro-capitalism argument, with the Soviet and Chinese communist dictatorships as the ultimate exemplars of Turgot's thesis. But in Turgot's time, they were actually referring to the Peruvian Incan Empire, which was sort of the Soviet Union of the Americas, but not exactly. And interestingly, some Russian communists like Georgi Plekhanov in the late 18th century were worried about a communist government turning into an Inca-style dictatorship if a revolution happened in the wrong conditions, which is more or less what happened after 1917. Now, I want you to notice the assumption that's built into Turgot's theory, that natural inequalities of ability... Pienersen's hierarchies of competence automatically lead to wealth inequality, and as soon as you have wealth surplus and accumulation, that these can only be reversed by some tyrant imposing unnatural equality from above. Now, this isn't true, as we'll see next time, but it's an idea that's very much ingrained into our own culture and society today. So, you have the Native American and European critique of European hierarchies, and then you had Chorgot's and others' defense of European hierarchies at least the hierarchies of wealth and power. And then you have Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And according to Graeber and Wengro, what Rousseau does with his famous discourse on inequality is that he synthesizes the two opposing views into a masterful declaration of impotence. He issues a scathing and shocking, for the time, critique of European hierarchy and economic inequality. But according to Graeber and Wengro, his critique ultimately implies that we have no alternative And thus, his critique ends up serving as a justification for the status quo. Now, I don't exactly buy this thesis. If you read Rousseau's essay, it concludes with a whole, what then is to be done section, the last big paragraph basically, where he asks, how do we improve our unnatural hierarchical conditions? And he more or less says, Well, we can't go back to living on acorns and swinging from trees, but what we can do is be good people and obey our laws and obey our leaders, but we have to make sure that they put out good laws and good constitutions. Now, This is very reminiscent of what weird, hypocritical left liberals do today when they issue a harsh and perceptive critique of our social institutions and economic institutions. And then instead of calling for a fundamental change to those institutions or an overthrow of those institutions, they're like, that's why corporations need to be good corporate citizens, or we should vote for a president who's a nice good boy instead of a meanie weenie bad boy, or... In the wannabe left post Raisin Brand post structuralist critical theory academic version, they're like, Revolutions are doomed to failure because the hegemonic power discourse reproduces the structures of power. But challenges to power are still possible in the interstices of power. Like, we can make tiny useless changes. So let's fight the power by criticizing the representation of data as an autistic coded person in Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> So this stuff does track with what Graeber and Wengro are saying, but realistically, if Rousseau had actually proposed any real solutions at the end of his book, like if he had called for the overthrow of the monarchy in the church, he would have ended up in jail. This was the Enlightenment and all, but France was still an absolute monarchy. You can't just call for eliminating the king. And if you read that concluding paragraph, it doesn't seem sincere. It just reads like he just slapped that in there so as not to get in trouble for the rest of the essay. Let Let me just read it to you. They will respect the sacred bonds of their respective communities. They will love their fellow citizens and serve them with all their might. They will scrupulously obey the laws and all those who make or administer them. They will particularly honor those wise and good princes who find means of preventing, curing, or even palliating all these evils and abuses by which we are constantly threatened. They will animate the zeal of the deserving rulers by showing them without flattery or fear the importance of their office and the severity of their duty. This is crap. He just slapped that on there so he wouldn't get killed. At the end of the day, given the fact that Rousseau was a major inspiration for the Jacobins and the sans culottes the more radical egalitarian factions in the French Revolution, it's clear that those people took the critique part of Rousseau's book way more seriously than the stupid, passive, three-second-slapped-on Stephen King novel crappy conclusion. It's actually Turgot that does what Graeber and Wengross say that Rousseau is doing. And you can see that just from reading their own excerpts of Choko, which I talked about above. But something that's interesting is that Graeber and Wangro also point out that Rousseau can't really envision what a society would actually look like in a state of liberty and equality. Rousseau says that humans in a state of nature are free and equal. But Rousseau's description of humans in a state of nature is individuals living all alone in trees without even a common language. In a way, his concept of human nature prioritized freedom, but it was also fundamentally antisocial. According to Rousseau, it's almost society itself social ties and obligations that are what oppress us fundamentally. It's like a spoiled North American kid or adult who thinks that happiness is just the right to do whatever you want, whenever you want, at any second of the day, without any limits or obligations to anyone interfering with it. And then they go and become an Ayn Rand libertarian, because that's how she saw the world. Just like Ayn Rand, Rousseau saw social obligations as the antithesis of freedom. The second every person isn't totally self-sufficient, you are oppressed. As Rousseau puts it in English translation, From the moment one man began to stand in need of the help of another, from the moment it appeared advantageous to any one man to have enough provisions for two, equality disappeared, property was introduced, work became indispensable, and vast forests became smiling fields, which man had to water with the sweat of his brow, and where slavery and misery were soon seen to germinate and grow up with the crops. And interestingly, Rousseau, like Chirigot, also takes for granted the assumption that inequalities or hierarchies of ability will necessarily result in economic inequalities. Quote, in this state of affairs, equality might have been sustained had the talents of individuals been equal. But, as there was nothing to preserve this balance, the strongest did the most work. The most skillful turned his labor to best account. The most ingenious devised methods of diminishing his labor. The husbandman wanted more iron, or the smith more corn. And, while both labored equally, the one gained a great deal by his work, while the other could hardly support himself. Thus, natural inequality unfolds itself insensibly with that of combination, and the difference between men, developed by their different circumstances, becomes more sensible and permanent in its effects, and begins to have an influence in the same proportion over the lot of individuals. Like, none of these people can imagine that you can have inequality of ability, but also have economic equality or political equality. And we're going to talk about this later when we look at egalitarian hunter-gatherer societies, which David Graeber doesn't seem to think exist. Now, Graeber and Wengro see Rousseau's thinking as stuck in European notions of liberty, which are rooted in individual ownership of private property, where liberty ultimately comes at someone else's expense, like the ancient Athenians who needed slaves in order to be able to enjoy liberty, as opposed to Native Americans who saw that liberty actually comes from being part of a society for mutual interdependence. Quoting from Graber and Wengro. For the Americans, the freedom of the individual was supposed to be based on some level of basic communism, since, after all, people who are starving or without adequate clothing or shelter in the snowstorm are not really free to do much of anything except what is necessary to stay alive. The European conception of individual freedom, on the other hand, was intimately linked to conceptions of private property. From a legal point of view, it goes back to the ancient absolute power of the Roman head of the family to do whatever he wanted with his personal and private property, including his children and slaves. In other words, freedom always comes, at least potentially, at the expense of others. Moreover, there was a strong sense that households should be self-sufficient. Hence, true freedom meant autonomy in the radical sense, not just autonomy of will, but in no way dependence on any other human beings, except those under their direct power or control. Rousseau, who himself always insisted that he wanted to live his life in a way that did not make him dependent on the help of others, even if he had all his needs met by mistresses and servants, echoes this logic. When our ancestors made the fatal decision to divide the land into individual parcels and created first legal structures to protect their property and then governments to enforce those laws, they imagined that they were creating the means to preserve their freedom but in reality they quote ran headlong into their chains and i'm reading great right run wingro quoting Rousseau this is a powerful image but it is hard to imagine what exactly Rousseau's lost freedom consisted of if as he insisted any continuing human relationship even of mutual aid was a restriction on freedom no wonder perhaps that he ended up inventing a purely imaginary age in which each individual human wandered alone among the trees and then a bit later we have this passage Of course, Rousseau's effusions on the fundamental decency of human nature and the lost ages of liberty and equality were in no way responsible for the French Revolution in the sense of putting strange ideas into the heads of the sans-culottes. As we have noted, it was the intellectuals in European history who seem to have been the only class of people who were unable to wrap their heads around these ideas. But it could be argued that by bringing together the indigenous critique and the doctrine of progress originally developed to counter it, that he, in fact, wrote the founding document of the left as an intellectual project. So here, Graeber and Wengro are differentiating between the spirit of the sans-culottes, the true street revolutionaries of the French Revolution, and the intellectual left, the middle-class lawyers and intellectuals who ended up taking power. And they're saying that Rousseau's narrative, according to which Graeber and Wengro is a half-assed cop-out synthesis of the indigenous critique and the right-wing reaction to that critique, where we criticize hierarchies, but we ultimately resign ourselves to them. They're saying that this cop-out is the foundation of the intellectual left. And this is a setup for what I think is going to be a critique of the Marxist left. So like in their interpretation of Rousseau, where you have a harsh critique of hierarchy, based on a vague two-dimensional vision of a society of free and equals, that's ultimately a justification for a hierarchy to persist. In the Marxist left and Leninist left, you have a far-off vision of a free and equal future, but you need these hierarchical parties and states and institutions to get us to that point. And it's often a point that never really materializes. And this is where we get the USSR and Communist China, etc. So in the next few paragraphs, Graeber and grow, quote, an original member of the Illuminati, calling for a small cadre of intellectuals to lead society into an era of equality and liberty. And they point out that this seems to prefigure the French and Russian revolutions. And also that it looks just like an excerpt of Rousseau's writing. And in the excerpts that I read earlier in the episode from Turgot and Rousseau, They're setting up their argument that the idea that human beings started out as egalitarian hunter-gatherers, and then we transitioned into hierarchical societies because of changes in material conditions. They're setting up the idea that that's part of this intellectual left justification for hierarchy. In other words, they're saying that those people who argue that human beings started out as egalitarian hunter-gatherers, which is the majority opinion among anthropologists and has been since the 1960s, that what these people are ultimately doing is they're saying that we can't have egalitarian societies anymore because we're not hunter-gatherers anymore, like Chorgo or Rousseau saying that hierarchy is the unfortunate price of the benefits of civilization. And this is one of the main points that they make in their article, How to Change the Course of Human History, which is what we'll be focusing on next episode. And this is where I'll be starting to critique them very harshly because this argument is just not true. Like, there are some people, usually people with no expertise, like Francis Fukuyama, who make those types of arguments. But there are no hunter-gatherer specialists who make those arguments, and there are many hunter-gatherer specialists who make the exact opposite argument, that the fact that human beings probably started out as egalitarian hunter-gatherers, enjoying liberty and equality at the same time, shows that human beings are capable of living in a state of equality and liberty, and maybe that we're even evolved and best suited to be living that way and that we can do that in the context of civilization if we change some of our major institutions and our material conditions. And we'll see why the evidence that Graeber and Wangro present that humans were not mostly egalitarian hunter-gatherers in the prehistoric Paleolithic past is really weak, and it's based on a really flimsy, factual, and theoretical basis. And also on a total ignorance, or in David Graeber's case, a total denial of the anthropology of egalitarian hunter-gatherer societies. And we'll see why the egalitarian origins thesis is still the majority opinion among anthropologists and hunter-gatherer specialists today. (laughs) So up until now, I've had a few quibbles with what Graeber and Wengrow have been saying, but in general, I find this chapter super interesting. It's really exciting, I learned all sorts of interesting history that I didn't know, it changed my view of the Enlightenment, etc. But then, in the closing paragraphs of the chapter, we get to the part that makes me want to tear my hair out, because it's basically a big tirade against the idea of equality as a meaningful concept. Graeber and Wengrow say that they don't know what equality means. And then instead of trying to figure out what it means, given that it's such a foundational concept, they just want to throw away the whole idea. And this is a theme that has quietly appeared throughout David Graeber's work, where he's trying to undermine the whole idea of equality. But here he's finally saying it outright. And the arguments in this section are based on all sorts of inaccuracies, outdated information, and weak cop-outs. And it exemplifies what's wrong with the state of political theory today, and what's wrong with the state of anthropological theory today, and what's wrong with David Graeber's thinking on human social organization. And it's why I'm doing this show in general, and these episodes in particular. But in order for you to really see what's wrong with this stuff, and why it's just so obnoxious and counterproductive, and why their arguments in how to change the course of human history are so obnoxious and counterproductive, I need to give you a little lesson on the history of the anthropology of hunter-gatherer societies particularly of egalitarian hunter-gatherer societies. And that's what I'll start off with next week, before I read the end of this Candia Ronk chapter. And then I'll go on to read and criticize the article How to Change the Course of Human History. I often think of David Graeber as kind of the Ernie of politics, like Ernie and Bert. Like he's really enthusiastic, he's really magnetic and charismatic and full of good ideas, but he's also just a total mess. And then Bert has to come and clean up that mess. So next episode, I'm gonna be Bert, But for now, I'm just gonna read the end of this chapter. I'm gonna bite my tongue and not make any comments about it until the next episode. When we set out to write this book, we imagined ourselves writing a contribution to the burgeoning literature on the question of the origins of social inequality, but this time, a contribution based on actual facts. Liberté, égalité, fraternité, were the rallying cries of the French Revolution. Today, there are entire disciplines, sub-branches of philosophy, and political science and legal studies which make equality their raw material. Equality is almost universally recognized as a value, despite the almost total absence of consensus on what the term actually refers to. Equality of opportunity, equality of condition, formal equality before the law. David Kraber needs to listen to my podcast. Similarly, societies such as the Mi'kmaq, Algonquin, or 17th century dot are regularly referred to as, quote, egalitarian societies, or alternatively, bands, or, quote, tribal societies, which are generally assumed to mean the same thing. No, they're not. Not to anybody who knows anything. It's never clear what the term is supposed to refer to. Yes, it does. Equality of decision-making. It is an ideology, the belief that everyone should be the same, obviously not in all ways, But in some ways that are considered particularly important? Or should it be a situation in which people are really the same? And if the latter, should it mean that an egalitarian ideal that characterizes this particular society is in fact largely realized, so that all members of society can be said to have equal access to land, or to treat each other with equal dignity, or to be equally free to make their own opinions known in public assemblies? No, equality of decision-making power. Or can it be a measure imposed by the observer, monetary income, political power, yes, caloric intake, size of house, number and quality of personal possessions. Would equality mean the erasure of the individual or the celebration of the individual? After all, a society in which everyone was the same and another society where everyone was so different that there was no criterion for saying that one was superior to the other, both those societies would seem egalitarian to an outside observer Can we talk about equality in a society where the elders are treated as gods and make all the important decisions? If everyone in that society who survives, say, past 50 years becomes an elder? No, we can't, (laughs) because it's not egalitarian, because it's gerontocracy. What about gender relations? Many so-called quote-unquote egalitarian societies are really only egalitarian between adult men. Sometimes the relationships between men and women in these societies are anything but equal. That's why anthropologists stopped calling those societies egalitarian in the 1960s. Other cases are more ambiguous. It may be that men and women in a given society not only do different jobs, but have different theories of what is important, so that they both tend to think that the other's main concerns, cooking, hunting, childcare, war, are insignificant, or so profoundly different that it makes no sense to compare them at all. Many of the societies encountered by the French in North America fit this description. They may be considered matriarchal from one point of view, patriarchal from another. In such cases, can we speak of equality between the sexes? If they have equal decision-making power, yes. Or could we do so only if men and women were equally equal according to some minimal external criteria, to be equally free from the threat of domestic violence, for example, or to have equal access to resources, or to have a say in common affairs, say yes. Since there is no clear and generally accepted answer to any of these questions, the use of the term equal has led to endless arguments. In fact, it is still unclear what the term egalitarian means. Ultimately, the term is not used because it has positive substance, but rather for the same reason that 16th century natural law theorists speculated about equality in the state of nature. The term equality is a default term, referring to that kind of protoplasmic mass of humanity that is imagined to be left over when all the trappings of civilization are stripped away. The egalitarian people are those who have no princes, judges, overseers, or hereditary priests, and are generally without cities or scriptures. They are societies of equals, only in the sense that all the most obvious signs of inequality are missing. It follows that any historical work that purports to investigate the origins of social inequality is in reality an investigation into the origins of civilization, a work that in turn implies a vision of history that, like Chorgos, conceives of civilization as a system of social complexity that guarantees greater overall prosperity, but at the same time guarantees that certain compromises will necessarily have to be made in the areas of freedoms and rights. We are trying to tell a different story. It is not that we consider it unimportant or uninteresting that princes, judges, overseers, or hereditary priests, or for that matter writing and cities, emerge only at some point in human history. On the contrary, to understand our present predicament as a species, it is absolutely crucial to understand how these things came about. However, we also insist that to do so, we must reject the idea of treating our distant ancestors of some kind of primordial human soup. Accumulating evidence from archaeology, anthropology, and related fields suggests that, like the Native Americans or the 18th century French, our distant ancestors had very specific ideas about what was important in their societies, that these varied considerably over the 30,000 years or so between the beginning of the Ice Age and the dawn of the civilization that we call home, and that describing them in terms of uniform, egalitarianism tells us almost nothing about them. There is no doubt that there was generally some degree of equality by default a presumption that humans are all equally powerless against the gods, or a strong sense that no one's will should be permanently subordinated to another, it would probably have been necessary to ensure that hereditary princes, judges, overseers, or priests did not appear for such a long time. But self-conscious ideologies of equality, that is, those that present equality as an explicit value, as opposed to an ideology of freedom, dignity, or participation that applies equality to all, seem to have been relatively recent in human history. No they're likely foundational to human history. Even when they do emerge, these ideologies rarely apply to everyone. The ancient Athenian democracy, for example, was based on the political equality among its citizens, even if they only represented 10 to 20% of the total population, in the sense that everyone had equal rights to participate in public decisions. We are taught to see this as a milestone in political evolution, as we consider that this older notion of equal civic participation was revived and expanded some 2,000 years later at the time of the French and American revolutions. This is a dubious proposition. The political systems referred to as democracies in 19th century Europe have almost nothing to do with ancient Athens. But that is not really the point. Athenian intellectuals of the time, who were mostly of aristocratic origin, Tended to regard the whole arrangement as a sordid affair, and much preferred the government of Sparta, which was run by an even smaller percentage of the total population, who lived collectively off the labours of the serfs. The Spartan citizens referred to themselves as the homoioi, the homoioi, as the homoioi, oioioi, what is this word? which could be translated as the equals, or those who are all the same. They all underwent the same rigorous military training adopted the same haughty disdain for both effeminate luxury and individual idiosyncrasies. They ate in communal halls and spent most of their lives practicing warfare. So this is not a book about the origins of inequality. So then what's the book about? But it does aim to answer many of the same questions in a different way. There's no doubt something that has gone terribly wrong in the world. A very small percentage of its population controls the destiny of almost everyone else, and is behaving in increasingly disastrous ways. To understand how the situation came about, we have to go back to what made possible the emergence of kings, priests, overseers, and judges. But we no longer have the luxury of assuming that we already know exactly what it was. Yes, we do know exactly what it was. Drawing on indigenous critics like Kandiaronk, we must approach the historical, archeological, and ethnographic record with fresh eyes. Oh wow, this is gonna be really great, right? No, it's terrible. Almost everything they say here is wrong or severely incomplete, or outdated. And I'll tell you why next time. In the meantime, please share this with your friends. Let people know that this show exists. And please review and rate it on iTunes or Apple Music because it makes the show appear on more searches. And if you have some cash, please subscribe to my Patreon or send me some one-time donations so that I can keep doing this. And until then, see ya! <laughs>